From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, Georgia reacts to the unprecedented Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. This is terror. This is the ugly face of terror, the likes of which we haven't seen in the Middle East since ISIS. Georgia elected officials are condemning what many say is the biggest attack on Israel since the Yom Kippur War almost 50 years ago. I'm Bill Nygut. Governor Kemp called the widespread attacks an egregious act of war. But some elected officials are calling for the protection of Palestinian civilians as Israel strikes back at Hamas's stronghold in Gaza. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington, where questions are being raised about what the House can actually do about the conflict with no speaker to carry out official proceedings. And later, some state Senate Republicans are trying to use a new commission to punish Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis for her indictment against Donald Trump and his allies. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. And Bill, I was trying to preserve my voice last (laughs) night as one of the 40,000-plus fans at the Braves game. That might have been one of the best. I think it was the best playoff game I've ever seen at Truist Park. On to Philadelphia. On to Philadelphia. Fingers crossed. I know we'll all be rooting for the Braves the next couple days. It won't be easy, but I think I can see two victories in a row in Philly. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, Georgians are having strong reactions to the massive and complex Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. While most elected officials have issued strongly worded statements in support of Israel, there are also those calling for an end to violence in the region without specifically criticizing Hamas. And a prominent group that has been active in protests against the Atlanta Police Training Center over the weekend held a rally condemning Israel for its policies towards Palestinians. Joining us now in the WABE studio in Atlanta to talk about all these developments is Dove Wilker, longtime regional director of the American Jewish Committee in Atlanta, the other AJC. <laughs> Dove, first, how's your family in Israel doing? What have the last few days been like? Uh, thank you for having me this morning, uh, Greg. It, it's it's awful. Uh, my family is, for the most part, fine physically, but psychologically, they're just destroyed. Um, family members called up for reserve duties, friends of friends who've been murdered. Um, this is impacting everybody in a way that is truly unimaginable. I, I know you asked me about my family, but I, I can't not say it. I just got a text message. I just got a, a WhatsApp group uh, at work. They said that 40 babies were murdered. 40. I, I, I don't know how these cop city, anti-cop city people do that. 40. 
Yeah, I think we're going to get to in yeah. a few minutes to talk a little bit about the yeah. what many people think, and Dove certainly expresses the inappropriateness of the people who are against the Atlanta Police Training Center suddenly turning Sorry. their message the way they did yeah. this Sorry. weekend. But in the meantime, yeah. you know, Dove, you said something very interesting to us before we started, and that was that um, parents are being urged to have their children get off of social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram. Talk about that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They're seeking to infiltrate the minds of uh, people around the world, and they're going to begin broadcasting horrific, horrific instances on those social media platforms. And it's not just the the live... Uh, instances that we have to worry about. It's the misinformation. It's the lies that they are sharing. And all too often, children these days live on these platforms. I I was doom scrolling last night on in, on Instagram looking for news. And you can't trust the sources either. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be that a blue check mark validated something. truth. Right? And now it means question. Yeah. I, I mean, my friends and I are texting often and saying to ourselves, can we trust this? Can we not trust this? We, because anybody can pay for a blue check mark. Anybody can put something up there. And so everything that we're sharing through American Jewish Committee, everything that I share with my friends has to be validated and verified through another source because we don't trust the people who are sharing the information. It, it, Bill, it's, it, it's a tragic world that we live in that you can publicly broadcast murders. Right. Abductions and things like that. And Israeli authorities say about 150, at least 150 hostages were taken. We're talking teenagers. We're talking people who are at a a peace concert in southern Israel. We're talking Holocaust survivor (laughs) who pulled out of her family. And all of this was broadcast by 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 the terrorists who pulled these people out of their homes. Yeah. This is, this was not, you know, some secret surveillance footage. This right. is all for all our eyes to see. They're gleefully cheer- sharing videos of raped women with blood running down their legs, walking through the streets of Gaza being cheered. I mean, what, this is not, this is inhumane. Well, Dove, here in Atlanta, there was statement after statement from Georgia elected leaders from both sides of the aisle, hmm. condemning Hamas, uh, Governor Kemp, Speaker yep. Burns, Senator Ossoff, Nikima Williams, Congresswoman, who's also the chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. Mm. That's not a given <laughs> that we had such unequivocal uh, uh, condemnation from both sides of the aisle. So tell us about the efforts to sort of cultivate this sort of environment in Georgia. Yeah. I, you know, on the one hand, in Georgia, we are very fortunate. You know, our elected officials, for the most part, are very supportive of the state of Israel. They are very much in the defense of the state of Israel. Uh, but it's not a given that they're going to say something. Um, you know, there was an unprecedented joint statement between the United States and Germany, France, the UK, Italy, one or two other countries. Right? The, these things don't just happen, but they all recognize the disgusting atrocity and massacres that have taken place. And I think that's the biggest difference here. Right. At this time, this is about a massacre, just same way it was after the Charlie Hebdo murder, same way after the Badawan um concert hall in Paris after the Pulse nightclub shooting, right? This is, this is the same, just the scale is significantly different, right? 260 people massacred at that music festival. Yeah. And guys, I've been deferring. I believe I'm the only one on today's podcast that doesn't have a direct relationship 
um, to Judaism, to being Jewish. Bill, you married into it. Dove and Greg, you guys are Jewish, right? So, but I, I'm a firm believer in like, listen, this is not my lane. And I want to I wanna listen more. Dove, you and I have had conversations yep. in the past where I've said, help educate me, yep. help me understand. And mm-hmm. so that's why I'm kind of taking yeah. a back seat right mm-hmm. now. But I do want to say that it was interesting to see, of course, there was a lot of outpouring after on Saturday as what happened became public. And I know we're going to talk more into some of the criticism at the way some people reacted, but I do think it was pretty swift and pretty bipartisan. Um, but it's like you can't get away from both the domestic politics at play, but also the complicated international politics at play. Yeah. Um, no. l- let me jump in. Uh, first of all, I, I just, uh, Tia, uh, thank you for talking about my Jewish wife. I happen to be Jewish myself as well, but uh, uh, I appreciate your, your mentioning all that. I, here's the thing, Dove, you mentioned it a minute ago. Right now, um, as Greg pointed out, the Georgia community, elected officials in Georgia are almost unanimous in their repulsion over this attack. Yeah. But we can't forget, we can't forget that Greg, last session, trying to get a bill that would define anti-Semitism through the legislature <laughs> was an issue that became incredibly difficult. So it's really good to see some unity now but we've seen other reactions to the Jewish community in the past. Yeah, and, and specifically, there was questions from a Georgia Republican state senator, Ed Setzler, um, that kind of held up some of the proceedings. But look, if the Senate wanted to pass that measure, they could have gone around Ed Setzler and, mm. set, and passed that measure. I think we're going to see not just because of, 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 this, of this atrocity, but I think we're going to see more of a momentum towards this bill passing next year, um, particularly because of the trip, the trade delegation trip to Israel, that Governor Kemp, um, John Kennedy, one of the top Republicans in the state Senate, and Speaker John Burns went on earlier this year, where um, I was only privy to a part of the conversation with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu between him and Governor Kemp. But one of the first things he asked is, hey, what's the status of that bill? <laughs> this is of no small consequence to the international community, um, you know, because leaders of, of, of Israel also see themselves as leaders of the Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, the language that we are seeing from the anti-Israel protesters, and that's one of the most t- disgusting things to me, is that within 24 hours of this happening, there was a protest outside against the Israeli consulate, against the state of Israel. It is the Jewish state of Israel, right? And so there is a time and place where the, the state of Israel does represent the Jewish people. And we have to remember, it's the state of Israel that has protected Jews around the world. The raid on Antebi, it was the Israelis that went and rescued Jews, right? It's oftentimes the state of Israel that is there to defend the Jewish community. So it is deeply personal to them. Let's talk about that rally. Um, there have been tension between some mainstream Democrats and grassroots activists uh, and the party's more left wing who oppose Israeli policies. Um, there's no denying, I mean, there, you know, it's, it's, there's plenty of reason to criticize different Israeli governments over the years. Uh, this is a time where of course, right now, even opposition parties within Israel have been calling for unity. There is going to be, there's a push towards a unity government right now. The protest against Benjamin Netanyahu's 
plan to erode the control of the powers of the Supreme Court have been put on hold because right now it's an existential threat to the state of Israel. Yeah. Nothing else matters at, at this point. Uh, we should be very clear. The, the people of Israel, the Jewish community around the world is unified in their support and their solidarity for the state of Israel. Any other issue that has arisen in the per- first few days is, in my mind, absolutely unacceptable. So, um, talk about a little bit. We've, we've said that elected officials in Georgia, mm-hmm. community leaders are speaking out in support of Israel right now. Right here in, in, in our community, in Atlanta, beyond the Jewish community, yeah. um, what's being done to show solidarity? with the state of Israel right now. Yeah, so we've gotten tremendous uh, messages of support, both privately and publicly, from all of our friends in the non-Jewish community. Uh, Tonight, Tuesday at 7.15, there's going to be a solidarity gathering at City Springs uh, in Sandy Springs, where we will hear from some of the community leaders, some of the elected officials, uh, other folks who are going to be sharing a message of solidarity. Right, letting people know that we are not alone. We invite everybody in the community to join us. I've heard from churches. I've heard from uh, community organizations and partners to that want to join us. And and those that the DeKalb County Commission actually this morning issued a resolution and is flying their sta- uh, flags at half mast. I know next week the Fulton County Commission is going to be issuing a proclamation as well. Uh, hope be on the lookout for buildings in blue and white across the city. Uh, in an effort to demonstrate solidarity as well. Yeah, yeah. The White House was lit up in blue and white yeah. last night. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the White House, but I also do want to bring up Senator. Um, pa- I don't. I don't want to mispronounce her last name. Panich. Yeah. Oh, state tweets, state representative Esther yeah. Panich. State yeah. representative Panich's yeah. tweet because we've kind of hinted on some perhaps not helpful or. Uh, not appreciated um, anti-Israel protests. And that is totally understandable, like Mm. time and place. Um, But I had the, I remember when I saw Representative Panich's tweet and I thought the same thing, like if anything, if the squad is being silent because perhaps they've decided their pro-Palestine stance is not helpful at this moment. So they said, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, and I don't, I can't speak for the squad, but um, the fact that they hadn't said anything to me, I was like, isn't that better than saying something that might not have been taken well? But then she still kind of called them out. And and quite frankly, and I think we need to be fair, people on both sides of the aisle, even other Jewish people told her that they felt that that was not appropriate. And and real quickly, what, what Tia is referring to is a, a tweet from State Representative Esther Panish, who's the only Jewish member of the Georgia legislature. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she's saying, hey, where's the squad on this one? She's referring to AOC and some of the other uh, more liberal members of of the, uh, the Democratic caucus up at the U.S. House. And as Tia mentioned, there was some really stinging pushback, especially from uh, particularly from some Jewish constituents, including several I know who texted me privately, but also some who put on 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 social media saying hey sh- you know she needs a primary well she went she went a little further than saying where are they she said are they out celebrating? are they celebrating you're yeah. right you're exactly yeah. right she, they said are, are they out there celebrating it was an, obviously they? an immediate emotional response yeah. that 
I would like to, th- and, but she's sticking to it. You know, I was going to say maybe she'd like to have taken it back if she'd had more time to think, but apparently she's very determined that that's a message that she's happy to have out Yeah, and there. back to Tia's question. I mean, there, there is that rift uh, in, uh, among some Democrats, especially it seems that like Republicans, for the most part, are all unequivocally supportive of, of aid to Israel. Um, but among Democrats, there is, we haven't really seen it in Georgia as much, but there is a little bit more of a division there. Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm in the studio here and I've got a box of tissues with me. Uh, and, and I've got a box of tissues because every time if I looked at my phone, I'd probably start to cry because of the stories that we're reading. And I, you know, I, I can't speak on why Representative Panich issued the tweet that she did, but I, I can tell you that she has family in Israel. She's got friends in Israel. She is as punched in the gut as, as all of us are. And, you know, unfortunately, often there are members of the squad and other progressive members within the Democratic Party, it, across the country that ignore what actually is happening. And I think in this instance, it's very much a statement of the massacre that took place was ignored, right? This was an obvious attack on civilians. This was an easy, to me, this is in the basketball terms, it's a layup, right? All you have to do is condemn the absolute atrocity that took place against the civilian population. There's a photograph for those of you who read the New York Times and have access to it. There's a remarkable to me photograph in today's New York Times. Um, It's a photograph of a woman who's older, probably in her 70s, maybe even in in her 80s. Um, She's in a golf cart. Apparently Hamas used golf carts to take away a number of hostages. Her name is Yara Adar. And she is sitting in the front seat of this cart with a stoic look on her face, not a look of fear, not a look of terror, mm. a look that to me expressed so much of saying, of, I, I could only imagine in her, her head, her thinking, um, this is what life has come to. Yeah. This is what we've, we've struggled and struggled for free Israel. And she didn't appear fearful. Maybe in her heart she was. But she appeared as someone saying, this is what life has come to. And almost yeah. a stoic sort of resignation that was even more disturbing than yeah. anything else. Yeah. You know, the, the brutality of what's taking place is, uh, is painful. And, and at the same time, there are, these mes- there are these stories of heroism by parents to protect their children. Uh, one older woman in a kibbutz made coffee, offered coffee and cookies to the terrorists and kept on the line, the IDF, so that they would know how many terrorists were in there. Mm. I, I mean, some of the stories in the engine, there was a, a family member, who, a writer, a journalist for the new Israeli newspaper Haaretz, whose father was a former general, got in his car and drove down to the kibbutz and helped to rescue his, his son and his grandchildren's family mm-hmm. on his own. Right. Some of the heroism. And that's I my wife said to me the other day, what are the songs that are going to be written about this that our grandchildren are going to hear? Yeah, that I was going to say that Atlantic article for anyone who hasn't seen it or read it. I think it's unlocked. So you don't need a subscription. It's if you go to the Atlantic's website, it's like the number one article. So you can't miss it. It was not only enlightening 
from a policy perspective because the journalist kind of shares a lot of the background of how this unfolded and his thoughts about where some of the um, political and national security failings occurred um, within Israel. But then, of course, that personal story of his him, his wife and his two very young children and their harrowing kind of experience waiting to be rescued by his father, who's a freaking hero. Yeah. And his father, yeah. like, had detours. There's going to be a right. movie about it. So in 2026, <laughs> I look forward to the, the, the movie same winning all way. the awards yeah. because the father and um, the mother, the grandma, the grandfather yeah. and grandma had their both their own individual experiences on the way to the rescue. It's amazing. They drove an hour and 20 minutes from Tel Aviv. Oh, it's usually only an hour and 20 minutes. They encountered multiple groups of terrorists in the border communities to rescue their son who was in a safe room at one of those communities. And people, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of visualize this, but many of these communities that Hamas infiltrated and invaded are right on the border of Gaza. They can't, they're so close that Iron Dome, which is the vaunted missile security system that protects other Israeli cities, it's too close for for the Iron Dome to to knock down missiles, uh, rockets that are uh, attacking those communities. They're right on the border. And there's this unwritten sort of agreement between the Israeli military and these these border settlements that, hey, they'll be protected. And as Tia said, there was a failing uh, of, of Israeli intelligence and military and it's hard for us to sit here in Atlanta and criticize what's happening in Israel, but clearly Israelis didn't look lightly on what happened in 1973 doing the yeah. surprise attack. And there's a lot of outrage in Israel right now. Yeah. Um, it, two, two anecdotes on, on the border communities. I, when I did my gap year in Israel, I actually lived in one of those border communities in the, in the town of Sterot, uh, three miles, three kilometers from the border of the Gaza Strip during the second intifada I was there. Uh, and I remember vividly the closeness with, that you were located in. In March, I traveled to Israel with a group of mayors. Actually, Vince Williams from Union City was a part of that delegation. And we met with the mayor of the area there. It's called the Gaza Envelope. And the first person that I learned about who was killed that I had met was the mayor of that community. Vince had met him. We stood on a hilltop looking into Gaza as he's sharing with us the plans for a, uh, um, an infrastructure, a, a, a production facility mm-hmm. that they're going to build on the Gaza border in Gaza to support the Palestinians, right? These are people that were, the people that lived in the Gaza border were not radicals, right? These are people who want to see a future Palestinian state survive. They want to see a, a peace between Israelis and Palestinians. You know, it's not 100% that way, but it really is. These are people that live there for the future because they believe in this message that we have of hope and peace between our two, our two people. And you know, sadly, those are the folks that were massacred. There's a, I have to share it. There's a kibbutz down there called Kibbutz Be'eri. A hundred people were massacred at the kibbutz. A hundred. You know, there there have been these comparisons uh, now, and, and Dove, you yep. mentioned the 1973 Yom Kippur War. So did you, Greg, um, that this is the worst attack <laughs> since that. That the, is Israel's 9-11. Yes. Yeah. Um, there, but there's a striking difference between what happened in 1973 and today. And that is, at, in, in 1973, you were dealing with countries on countries. Yeah. And there was, the, there was, there were states that could, in fact, engage in negotiating peace agreements. Yeah. Hamas, which has had control of Gaza since 2006, 
one control in an election back then, but it's the last time an election has been held uh, among the Palestinian people in Gaza. This is not a state with which you can negotiate much more than an exchange of prisoners, perhaps, hostages for Palestinian prisoners. But Hamas is not going to be subject to the international pressures to somehow find a way to get to peace with Israel. Or do you think I'm wrong about that? No, I mean, look, everything is going to go through Iran, right? This is all about Iran, 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 Iran. Uh, And and that's at the end of the day, one of the greater challenges, right? Most people, including myself, were fixated on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, where Hezbollah is situated because Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy. They've got over 200,000 rockets waiting to rain down on on Israel. And Hamas, we all know, is, a, is an Iranian proxy, but Hamas isn't m- moving an inch without Iran saying so. And m- this is creating a political challenge as well for us, right? Like this is, you know, may- maybe it's good that I- the United States is talking to Iran because it can lead to some sort of deal in the end. But, but right now, Israel's response is going to be Israel's response. There is no interest. Uh, Israeli ambassador Michael, Michael Herzog said last night, on a, on one of the stations mm-hmm. that we're not talking about a ceasefire. We're not talking about a deal, right? Like this is a war and Israel is responding to the war. Yes. And, and yeah. the prime minister has said he yeah. wants to change the entire equation. Yeah. Um, and, and I understand that. But my point is that at a certain, that there is no sense in which you're going to be able to arrive at a peace with Hamas Unless they are completely wiped out, as the prime minister suggests they that, have to be. That is correct. There, there, is, there is no future to Hamas. That's, I think, the most important. And we're looking at a very bloody and violent yes. future, indeed. Well, Dove, yeah. thank you so much for joining thank us. You. We thank appreciate you. it so much. Just ahead, without a speaker in place, is the U.S. House unable to provide crucial moral support and more in terms of financial and military aid as Israel fights a full-scale war against Hamas? This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Well, the sudden outbreak of war in Israel ratches up the urgency of House Republicans to choose a new speaker. The two declared candidates, Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, spent the weekend hunting for votes. Could the crisis in the Middle East open the door for the return of Kevin McCarthy? Tia, another big week on your beat. It's a big week. Um, and that whole thing about McCarthy sliding back in, I think, you know, he called a news conference on Monday, which I think it's, we got to note, Monday was a federal holiday. Mm-hmm. Congress was not in session staff wasn't around. And I think McCarthy took advantage of what he knew was going to be a relatively quiet day on the Hill to hold court and to position himself as, you know, this leader in the house in a vacuum. And 
Of course, he said, you know, I'm not running for speaker again, but I'll do whatever my colleagues need from me. And to me, it seems pretty clear that he wants them to come crawling back with their tail between their legs. Um, He wants to be able to um, say to the Democrats who voted to remove him and to those eight Republicans that, hey, how you like me now? And I'm not saying right now he's an odds-on favorite, far from it. But the other two candidates, Steve Scalise, who's the number two under McCarthy, he was the House Majority Leader, Jim Jordan of House Freedom Caucus fame. They're racking up dozens of endorsements, but neither one of them has anywhere near the numbers needed to become speaker. So it's all in flux. But now there's this pressure, you know, there's Mm -hmm. now tangible like it's not just in a what if there's like real pressing things happening and there's no House speaker and there's no precedent for what happens without a House speaker. So there's this caretaker, Patrick McHenry, um, but there's no clarity on what he can or can't do. Um, It also doesn't help that Congress, by law, gets to make its own rules. So on any given day, Congress could vote tomorrow to give Patrick McHenry all the power as a speaker and kind of make the urgency go away. But even that, are they going to be able to agree and get a majority of House members agree to that? We don't know. There's no precedent. So, um, Tia, we've got a split so far developing in the Georgia delegation on speaker, right? You've got Buddy Carter, Austin Scott, I think, and Drew Ferguson have all said they're going to support Scalise, whereas Andrew Clyde has announced he's going to vote for uh, Jim Jordan. And meanwhile, Marjorie Taylor Greene is keeping her powder dry, right? Yeah, so Marjorie Taylor Greene initially was wanting a long shot bid for Donald Trump. You know, again, there are no rules saying the House Speaker has to be a member of the House, but no outsider has ever been elected House Speaker. Um, She was among a handful who said, let's let Donald Trump be House Speaker. And Donald Trump entertained it for a couple of days, but he eventually endorsed uh, Jim Jordan Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But Marjorie Taylor Greene, she did a couple of TV appearances over the weekend where she's basically saying, I'm going to support whoever agrees to line out Ukraine funding and do more legislation to stop trans kids from receiving treatment, essentially. And so she's saying she wants to hear from the candidates. It's Tuesday. There is a candidate forum tonight, Um, again, just among Republicans only. And so we'll see if she comes out of there with any clarity, but that still um, there are still she and four other House Republicans, um, Rick Allen, Barry Loudermilk, Mike Collins, Rich McCormick, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're the undecideds, and they represent the majority of Republicans who also haven't publicly, you know, maybe privately they've given mm-hmm. some indications, but publicly they haven't said who they would support. The straw poll is supposed to be Wednesday. But again, if Wednesday, technically, um, whoever gets a majority of House Republicans vote then becomes the House Republicans candidate and every other Republican is expected to get in line 
when the speaker vote goes to the floor for the official vote with Democrats. But we all know history has shown us that that didn't work out well for Kevin McCarthy. And so what House Republicans are are saying is that we're not going to tell Democrats to come to the floor for an official vote until we know we have a Republican who can get the majority without relying on Democrats. Right now, that's 217. Guys, we have some audio from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene saying Kevin McCarthy should not have been ousted in the first place, opening the door for his return. A lot of the Republican voters in the base are angry because they never see anyone held accountable. So when when a group of eight joined with Democrats to oust our speaker, um, that was something people cheered for because they were ready for someone's head on a platter. But it shouldn't have been our Republican speaker. But Tia, this doesn't change the underlying calculus. If there is a comeback from Kevin McCarthy, he would still need Democratic votes. And to a lot of Republicans, that's a non-starter. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't necessarily need Democratic votes, but he would need to get 217 of the 221 Republicans to but vote for him. But if there's eight him. Republicans who opposed right. him a couple days ago, there's, not, there's no telling, there's nothing indicating that they're going to change their minds. Though. That's where his math is not mathing, as the kids say, because, <laughs> um, you know, he might be able to flip one or two of the eight. But there are some of the eight who have said they will never, you know, I can't, I don't see a place where Nancy Mace or uh, Matt Gates, who have been most vilified mm-hmm. by Kevin McCarthy since his ouster, I don't see them ever finding a, a way to vote for Kevin McCarthy. So that's already two um, of the other six, you know, again, he would need them to flip and that's not likely. Um, there are on, on the other side for Scalise and Jordan, their math, there are now some always McCarthyers. There are some um, lawmakers, including Representative John Rutherford of Florida, who have said they will only vote for Kevin McCarthy. They will never select anyone else but Kevin McCarthy. Now, again, could that change? Yes. But if you've got five Republicans who refuse to support anyone else, once again, there is no math to 217 for anyone else. You know, real quick, it, it does strike me, uh, Greg and Tia, that this we've watched the Republicans in the House um, implode over their feuding. These eight outliers who have refused to uh, uh, join with other Republicans to have any unanimity on any issue at all. And it's it's one thing when it's the budget as serious as that is, and as serious as the potential for a government shutdown is. I'm not sure that resonates as well with voters around the country. But you now have a conflagration. In the Middle East, you now have Israel at a full-out war against Hamas. And now, with Republicans not able to get their act together and elect a speaker, it's a whole higher level of concern. And not to mention the ongoing land war, the biggest land war we've seen in Europe since World War II. And that's why we're hearing down here in Georgia, Tia, from so many Republicans saying, to con- congressional Republicans, get your act together. Show that Republicans can govern a giant election. You know, the, the world, the most important election in, in America's history, as every election is. But a, a huge election's coming up in 2024, and Republicans down here want Republicans in Washington to show that they can govern. Right. And I think you guys bring a point home that I think Republicans have been trying to deflect from. This is a Republican issue. You've seen Kevin McCarthy say, well, it's the Democrats who ousted me and just eight Republicans. But that's not how things work. 
quite frankly, Kevin McCarthy made a choice not to try to build a coalition with Democrats. So um, on one side, he's saying, well, Democrats ousted him. But he also said, I'm not going to try to work with Democrats to remain speaker. He said that. So you can't expect Democrats to come along when Republicans aren't doing anything to work with them. And that includes on things like government funding, where the debt ceiling deal that Biden and McCarthy negotiated, House Republicans encouraged McCarthy to cut even beyond that agreement. um, And he went with it, which is why Democrats aren't voting with Republicans on financial issues. We know when it comes to Ukraine, Democrats are the ones who support the funding for Ukraine more than Republicans. Republicans are split almost Mm 50-50 at this point in the House. It's much more bipartisan in the Senate still. So again, Republicans are the ones who are being pulled to the right and they're having a hard time, again, with a slim majority, creating a governing coalition. And that's what's causing this gridlock right now in Washington. Bill, on that note, it's really interesting to see how Republicans who oppose military aid to Ukraine also give Israel their unequivocal support. Yeah, the Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greens of the world, who are who are the kind of the leading leading uh, most outspoken opponents of military aid to Ukraine, are also saying uh, that they unequivocally support Israel. Right uh, now. Yeah, yes, um, and that makes sense uh, in, in, because um, right now everyone supports what's happening uh, in in Israel and the need, and because Israel has always been a favorite of. Uh, right wing, well, of, of the Republicans in general, of conservatives, and- yeah, conservative Christians and the like. Um, but this also is why the White House is now apparently proposing to uh, uh, try to do a, 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 a deal in which they'll attach Ukraine aid to the Ukraine to aid to Israel with no speaker in the House. It's not going to get very far on that side of the building. Exactly. But Tia, you know, with that, I know it's been early since that you know, we haven't had much time to delve into that package and ask our own congressional delegation in Georgia what they feel about it. But, you know, given the the, the statements from across the aisle, right, from Nakima Williams um, all the way to Drew Ferguson and other conservative Republicans, uh, it's it's it'd be hard to see some sort of deal on Ukrainian aid that is tied together with Israel um, facing stiff opposition in the House. So I think you're right that it seems like it would make sense to couple Ukraine aid with Israel aid. But what we're seeing is that if that works, members on both sides of the aisle who support Ukraine are cool with it. But if it doesn't work, I think there could be um, some decoupling so that the aid for Israel doesn't get slowed down if there is still this big opposition for aid to Ukraine. Now, the thing is, aid to even aid to Ukraine can pass in the House. It can. Um, the House took some votes on amendments to the budget, for example, that failed because Democrats and Republicans voted together to keep Ukraine money in these spending bills. Money for Ukraine can pass in the House. But The question is, again, if somebody is afraid that bringing such legislation to the House floor threatens them becoming speaker or makes an agreement in order to become speaker that they won't bring such legislation to the House floor, that again is where 
the divides within the House Republican mm-hmm. conference are affecting the ability to even move forward with money for Ukraine. So yeah, we got to take a quick break soon. But before we go to break, there's going to be a lot of coverage. There's going to be a lot of developments in Washington in the next couple of days. You'll be all over it. I know our colleague Patricia Murphy is flying there right now as well to cover some of the goings on under in Congress. But what are you most watching in the next two or three days? I'm most watching to see if, especially coming out of this candidate forum tonight, if there's any coalescing around a front runner, depending on who you read, Jim Jordan is the front runner or Steve Scalise is the front runner. Um, if there, if Republicans seem willing to create a consensus candidate, because we know that there's part of the brand of conservative politics right now is you don't negotiate with the enemy. You pick people who agree with you and you stick with them. And um, so I'll be watching for that. And then again, the question is, do they either officially or just by kind of pushing the envelope empower McHenry? Do they say, McHenry, there is no precedent. Bring legislation to the floor. Don't wait for a new speaker. That'll be really interesting because this will be li- literally creating history as it at, in real time. Stay tuned. We'll have lots of updates tomorrow's show. And of course, theajc.com. Still to come on Politically Georgia, I'll have details of my exclusive report on an effort now underway in the state Senate to punish Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis by bringing her before a new commission established to sanction local district attorneys. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Well, it's safe to say that the branch of Georgia government that has most aggressively tried to punish Fannie Willis is the state Senate. Its leaders have called for hearings to investigate her use of resources and pursuing charges against Donald Trump. They've launched a probe into the years-long backlog at the Fulton County Jail. And now this. Eight Republican state senators banded together, together to file the first formal complaint seeking to sanction Fannie Willis under the new DA oversight law, which is the power to reprimand or even oust local prosecutors. This is despite Governor Kemp's repeated warnings that Republicans shouldn't use this commission to punish Willis for obtaining an indictment against Donald Trump. I think we have audio. You know, based on the law that we have in Georgia, you you can't go after a prosecutor because they're, you know, perhaps being political. I mean, I haven't seen anything that she has done that has broken uh, the law or the procedures that we have. And and I was very honest with people about that. I mean, it may be a political action she's taken in some ways uh, uh, with with timing and other things, but it, it doesn't mean it's illegal. That was Governor Kemp in an interview with me a couple of days ago. He, he, of course, famously 
used a press conference about a uh, severe weather to also note that Republicans should not try to impeach Fonnie Willis and that there is no proof doing so. Bill, this exposes a deeper rift among Republicans about how to respond to the indictment. Yeah, it sure does. Of course, we should remind people that this was one of Governor Kemp's top priorities during the legislative session was creating this commission. So it isn't as if he somehow felt the commission was a bad idea in the first place. He wanted the commission in place. But you're right. You know, it occurs to me, Greg, that there was a time when a governor who put his foot down and said, this is not the appropriate thing to do to Fonnie Willis. I've seen no uh, reason why uh, she should uh, be brought before this commission would probably pretty much stop anybody else in their tracks from taking action. But it's just what you're talking about. The lieutenant governor, Republican members of the state Senate are not going to uh, pull back on their efforts to undermine Fonnie Willis in any any way. Um, so it's fascinating to watch that um, back and forth as uh, it, it develops. The jail is overcrowded. One of the main reasons it's overcrowded is there is a backlog of cases, but um, whether or not uh, this justifies moving forward with an investigation into Fonnie Willis is another matter entirely. That's interesting to see the split among Republicans. Look, Governor Kemp is the most popular Republican, according to polls. He easily won a re-election against Stacey Abrams in a rematch. But at the same time, he doesn't have complete control, and no one does, over the Republican levers of power in Georgia. And we just saw that over and over again. He, he got most of priorities through the Georgia legislature this past session. But at the same time, the Georgia GOP, the actual state Republican apparatus, which he's broken from, is taking stances that he abhors, you know, that he wants to keep away from him with a 10-foot pole, um, uh, including, you know, calls for uh, Fonnie Willis's uh, impeachment and, and other stances that he doesn't see as, uh, as, as the valid way to go right well, now. Well, we watched tensions bubbling up between Governor Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones during the past session of the legislature on a number of major issues. We have to assume that it's going to intensify in the next session of the legislature. But in the meantime, we need to remind people that uh, Burt Jones, uh, it's only by the grace of a judge, Robert McBurney, who escaped being one of the probably indicted uh, fake electors. Uh, McBurney, of course, said that Fonnie Willis uh, had a conflict of interest. And so he pulled Burt Jones, who was a target of the investigation, out of that group. Um, so, I mean, we're just, I think, going to see the tensions between the lieutenant governor and the, the uh, leaders, the Republican leaders of the Senate fighting with Kemp more and more. Yeah, that's such a good point. Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, Trump aligned, got Trump's endorsement. Um, is is seen as more conservative than many members of the mainstream Republican Party in Georgia. He's the president of the state Senate. Is the state Senate, as I mentioned earlier, that has been the sort of most aggressive in coming out and taking swipes at Fonnie Willis, not just because of Burt Jones, too. Sean Still, one of their members, was indeed indicted for being a member of the phony, the sham elector slate that signed false certificates alleging that Donald Trump won the Georgia vote in 2020, even though he didn't. And State Senator Colton Moore has really turned up the pressure on his colleagues and singled out two of them by name and even put out their phone numbers on social media saying that they should support his politically impossible 
effort to impeach Fonnie Willis. So some Republicans told me they just felt like they had to do something to sort of release the pressure. Yeah, and that's why I've always kind of maintained from up here in Washington that I feel like this law is being applied the way the Republicans who created it intended. Like I get that Governor Kemp is saying, well, no, I don't think you should use this law against Fonnie Willis. But I don't I think most Republicans, that's exactly what they had in mind when they passed this law. I think they also, you know, we talked in the jolt this morning about the public, um, the um, prosecutor in Athens mm-hmm. Clark and concerns about her choosing to not go after low level criminals. I also do believe that that's also one of the targets. But I don't I think Fonnie Willis was uh, uh, this is who they had in mind. And so, again, Governor Kemp helped create the monster. I, I I trust him when he says, this isn't what I meant by how I wanted this law to be applied. But he also knows who's, who he's dealing with in, you know, these kind of more hardliner members of his party. And so they're using the law for this reason. They're lo- using the law because... They put it on the books to be used for this reason. Well, again, it's one thing for the complaint to be filed as it was, um, you know, this week by, well, last week, actually, by state Senate Republicans. It's another for it to actually succeed. And we don't know if it will succeed. Um, I, I can tell you that a number of the, the, you know, the people who are appointed to these panels are very respected law enforcement officers and prosecutors and former judges. And uh, there is a belief among the legal community that these will go nowhere but the very fact that these complaints will be filed is a, is a signal to the legal community. And exactly kind of what prosecutors said in pushing back is this is sort of a, uh, it's a slippery slope is what they argue. This is a, they, they see this, the lawsuit that, that four members of the district attorney bar uh, filed, bipartisan coalition filed, said that they saw this as an unprecedented power grab that will infringe on their their ability to do, to carry out their, their promises to their constituents because they'll always be kind of worried about this threat of a complaint being filed against them. I thought, Greg, um, this was a great exclusive on your part, frankly. It's a big story, uh, um, um, but I do think it's on the front page, we should point out today. Um, but uh, uh, you do point out in this story that nothing is going to happen one way or the other very quickly. Because there are steps that need to be taken before this commission is actually empowered to begin take, uh, doing anything with these complaints at all, right? Exactly. The rules and regulations have to be hashed out. The Georgia Supreme Court has to um, has to approve them. There has to be an executive director appointed to this commission. Um, it's already received other complaints too, and this is uh, not every complaint means is newsworthy. Not other, every complaint is going to even be valid. This one, though, is is unique because it has the signatures of eight Republican state senators, including Steve Gooch, who's one of the top ranking Republicans in that chamber. But you're exactly right. This doesn't mean that Fonnie Willis, even if it succeeds, anything will happen to her. And there's many legal experts who feel like these complaints will go nowhere. You know, I think in some ways the um, um, uh, Tia mentioned the Athens Clark County DA and that Deborah Gonzalez who was really the motivation behind why Governor Kemp backed this in the first place. And and there are some ways in which I think what happens in terms of her case is more interesting than Fonnie Willis. The Fonnie Willis uh, uh, effort 
is strict, clearly political. Deborah Gonzalez, if she in fact comes before this commission, it's going to be because she made it clear that she did not want to prosecute low-level drug offenses as much as going after more serious uh, offenders. Now, that may or may not have been the right decision on her part, and there are apparently some other problems in the office. She's had assistant DAs who have resigned. But a DA in any jurisdiction um, would assume they have the right to decide which cases they believe are the most important to take up for their own communities. And now the state comes along and says, no, 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 it's up to us to tell you what cases are worth prosecuting. Yeah, look, supporters of this measure all along have said, look, there's already uh, legislation intact in place in order to scrutinize judges and their ability to do their duties. And certainly the Judicial Qualifications Commission has been very active in recent years. But um, Governor Kemp did invoke this Deborah Gonzalez, the Athens DA, very early on, shortly after his reelection was the first time where he uh, kind of brought this up as a priority of his. This did not really come up on the campaign trail. And you're right. It's not just about her prioritizing uh, serious criminal offenses over low, what, what, what she views as low-level drug offenses. It's also an exodus of staff from the DA's office and handling of some very important, very consequential high-profile cases uh, in, in Athens over there. Well, Bill, one more thing. This is not it. Uh, Steve Gooch told me, he's the Senate Majority Leader, that this complaint is just one of the tools at our disposal. So we'll be looking for potential hearings and other ways that Republicans could fire back, especially in the state Senate, at Fonnie Willis. Yeah, I, you know, I, I saw that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they would proceed without any cooperation from Fonnie Willis um, or her office in terms of an investigation. Well, if you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can now call in the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast, but I want to remind you that we'll be dropping new editions of the AJC's Politically Georgia every weekday, starting today. You can look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. each afternoon. All this leads up to the October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air Monday through Friday mornings at 10 a.m. on WABE. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.